0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about Amazon Prime Day, not as an ad for the company, but because many small businesses are living with fear and trepidation about what this is going to do to their lifespan, to their business model as we begin to move towards the Christmas season. We're also going to talk to a Hamilton woman who has done something I don't think anyone has done before or will do again, walked every street of Hamilton, Stony Creek, glanbrook and has now moved into ancaster and dundas we've talked to her before but we're catching up with her on this one and then don robertson joins us to talk about all manner of things including whether or not lebron james is the most needy athlete of all time we'll explain stay with us
1: today on the scott radley show on 900 chml
0: today and tomorrow are amazon prime days now if you don't know what that is Essentially, it is kind of an online version of Black Friday or Boxing Day, uh, something that Amazon, the online giant, does every year. Just big savings on an awful lot of products. Uh, More than anything, it is really, really heavily publicized so people know about it and then they can go online and they probably buy something. It's kind of like going to Costco. You don't go to Costco and walk out empty-handed very often. You go on Amazon during the sale and you're probably going to buy something. Nobody leaves empty-handed. Difference this year is that usually it's held in July, but of course, COVID threw everything in the world into block pushed to now. And why does that matter? Well, here's the thing. Some polls that are being done, because they do these things about Christmas shopping, are showing as many as half of consumers, half of consumers are planning on doing all of their Christmas shopping online this year whether it's because of convenience or because they don't want to go to the stores because of COVID, whatever 50% roughly are saying they're thinking of doing all their shopping online this year. And with this sale happening now and with black Friday, only a month or so away, there is a lot of fear in a lot of corners that this could really decimate The season, the Christmas season and the sales for bricks and mortar stores, small businesses kind of stores. Uh, Let me bring in Ryan Malo. He is the director of provincial affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ryan, thanks for doing this today. For having me. Is this, um, are these fears, are they overstated or is this a legitimate fear that small businesses should have?
2: Well, I think there's some legitimate concern out there. I mean, keep in mind, we're talking about businesses who were shut down for three months at the beginning of the year, so they're already playing catch up, uh, and whose make or break season is still to come at a time where there's a lot of public concern around the second wave, question marks about whether these businesses will even be open to go to come November, um, and then competing with an online retail giant that even even if you are a business who is online, um, makes it very difficult to compete with as far as accessibility and just general how, how well known they are in the public.
0: And if you believe these polls that, as I say, that half the people are saying that they are going to do all their, onla- all their Christmas shopping online and other numbers said that as much as $10 billion is going to be spent on Amazon over these two days, I don't know how big the pie is for people's disposable in- income for Christmas gifts, but... That sounds like it could chew into an awful lot of what people will spend for the season, leaving how much for those other stores?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, it's almost something of a, a self fulfilling cycle where, you know, people are concerned that the bricks and mortar stores might not be open later in the season. Um, but at the same time, because of that, Amazon's likely to be packed. So instead of shopping uh, on Amazon at that time, we have to do it earlier. But by doing it earlier, you don't really allow yourself that extra bit of spending that could go towards a brick and mortar store should they not be closed in the season. So I think, I mean, again, I think there is, there is some cause to concern. And I think ultimately people need to need to consider what happens with their dollars when they spend it, uh, when they're making a purchase.
0: I don't want to be, um, uh, I don't even know what the word is cold or sounding like I, I don't care cause that's not it. But do you think people care? I, I mean, honestly, at a time when people, when a lot of people, things are tight, and uh, do people really care where they buy their stuff from as long as they get a good price? Like, are they really worried about the bricks and mortar store if they get a really good price on a computer or something?
2: I think that the the sentiment is there. And I think we've seen a, a strong, you know, support local sentiment uh, that's, that's more present than we've seen in previous years. Um, that being said, though, we do know that for for customers, the number one thing is, is always going to be price. But at the same time, I would urge customers that, you know, if they see something they, li- they like on Amazon even. Take a look at your local store. Check to see if they have a website too, because oftentimes it's not really the the initial price point that Amazon is competitive on. It's free shipping. That's where Amazon's real main advantage comes from. Is no small business under the sun can offer free shipping on the scale that uh, Amazon is able to. But you'll find if you're able to go into the store, the prices are actually quite competitive.
0: But how does somebody? And and look again. I don't want to be a, a downer the whole time here, but. Uh, if you find that pr- product that you say online and then you say, okay, go look at your brick and mortar store that's nearby or your local store. The challenge is, unless you know the name of that local store, you won't know how to find them online. Whereas Amazon or Walmart, everybody knows them. You just type them in and you find anything.
2: Yeah, and, and that's the difficulty. And, and I mean, realistically, we, we understand that, you know, we are asking consumers to to do a little bit of extra work. And for some people, um, that's that in itself is going to be too much. But again, I would go back to consider... What is happening to your dollars when they're spent? Amazon is not paying local property taxes. That money's not going towards local schools or local roads. Um, when you spend a local dollar, that dollar really is staying local. That is the, not just the business owner, not just the employees. It's the guy with his name on your back of your kids hockey sweater. It's the, the guy who donates to, you know, the, the local stag when they're looking for donations sort of thing. And if we aren't there to support them this holiday season, they may not be there next year when we're ready to go back out.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ryan, on top of
0: everything else, and I keep saying on top of everything else, it does start to pile up. Um, You've got this issue with, uh, you know, not just Amazon moving their sale to now, but people seemingly, according to the numbers, still scared, in many cases, worried to go out to stores anyway. So you're if you own a business, if you own a bricks and mortar business, as we say, you're up against it twice now.
2: Yeah, and that's been something that's been exceptionally difficult throughout the, let's call it the stage reopening, uh, especially in Ontario, where uh, I think there was maybe some, some perception perhaps amongst government officials and maybe some of the public that reopening would kind of be what businesses needed to get back on their feet. But we are now seven months into the pandemic and only 28% of small businesses across the province are back to normal revenue, ne- normal revenue huh. levels. Um, which, is, which is a very low number, and it really comes down to consumer confidence. I mean, despite business owners, you know, really doing what they can as far as making sure people are wearing masks, having hand sanitizer on site, plexiglass, new cleaning uh, procedures, everything they can do, um, people are still a little bit uncomfortable, and that is having a major impact.
0: And, and all those things at a cost to this small business that's already on n- margins that are tiny.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. All of this comes all of this comes with a cost. We were glad to see the uh, provincial government announced that they are putting together a a grant um, for PPE, although right now just for the smallest businesses and only a thousand dollars. But it's a start. Um, but they again, businesses really do need the the customers to come back. That is the the missing element right now.
0: So how do they catch up? Um, because for many small businesses, um, you know, Christmas shopping, Christmas season starts after Halloween for sure, for many of them after Remembrance Day. And now you get hit by this giant tidal wave of Amazon's early Christmas shopping and much of the disposable income may have already been spent. How do you, how do you catch up and, and dig into that? Yeah,
2: I mean, it's, it's a tough question. And I, I think we've seen some businesses are, are maybe letting uh, Amazon dictate the pace a little bit. We've heard about Christmas sales starting as early as October this year. Um, which, I mean, will be a bit of an interesting experiment when it comes to bricks and mortar. I'm not sure how ready people are to see a Christmas tree in the window just now. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's very much a sign of the time. So that's that's the reality that retailers are living in.
0: But it just, it, it becomes, um, like, it really is an unfair fight. And, the, and no one's arguing against that. I mean, I know I was reading a piece that in the States, a whole lot of independent booksellers today... Um, Did a publicity stunt, as it were, where they boarded up their windows with Amazon boxes and put box Amazon boxes out front to make the statement: "This is your future. We're not going to be here if you don't shop at our places." You know, I I just I don't know again how much that resonates. I think people will notice that, but I don't know how much it resonates when it really comes to pulling money out of your wallet.
2: Yeah, and and that's really what it's going to come down to this this holiday season is that you're. Your main streets, your local communities, they need it to resonate because I know, you know, walking down the street right now, you may see the occasional shop with, with, you know, darkened lights or a sign on the window and sort of walk by and think, Oh, that's too bad. But that problem could get a lot worse very quickly. Um, if we're not supporting our local retailers through what they need to be, uh, their best season. Cause I'm telling you right now, if a retailer is struggling November, December and can't make it through January, February, which are traditionally the slowest months, are going to be non-starters and you're going to look at a permanent closure.
0: So what do you do? I mean, cause you can't stop Amazon. You can't stop Walmart. You don't want the government. I don't think to stop them, but what do you do?
2: I think it's, it's a matter of, of getting out there in your community. I mean, one of the, one of the advantages that the Amazons and the Walmarts have is that, you know, when you do a quick Google search, they are what pops up. Um, so small businesses are, are, Catching up a little bit on the tech side, I think COVID in a, in a sense has been good for that as far as getting more of an online presence, um, but it's about making yourself known. And one of the best things still for small businesses when it comes to advertising is very much word of mouth. You're out there and you have a favorite restaurant, a favorite store, a favorite spot. Um, let your friends know, let your you know, local politicians know, tweet about it, Instagram, whatever you got to do, but get the word out there. Um, because I, I think that a lot of people really would like to shop local and maybe don't know where to start and helping them down that road, mm. um, again, could prove to be the best thing that happened for those businesses.
0: If there is one bit of good news in this, I guess, it's that um, Amazon does purchase from small businesses and distribute them. So if you buy off Amazon, I suppose some small businesses could still be benefiting.
2: In some cases, there are some small merchants that are, are there through Amazon. And again, that's just where you we ask that you, you know, Think about it when you're shopping. Check because you, you know it, it will indicate on the page if you're buying something that is, uh, you know, local from a small business, Canadian-made, and that sort of thing. So it's just it's another step people have to take. But again, um, the small business, their, their community will very much thank you for doing it.
0: Ryan Malo, the director of provincial affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. So his words there. I mean, take them seriously. If there is something that you can buy off Amazon or you can buy from a local company, you know, I don't want to dump on Amazon, although I hardly think I have to. They're worth $1.7 trillion right now. I think they're doing just fine. If it's a couple bucks here or there between saving or getting it from a local company, for heaven's sakes, if you know of it, do it. Help here. Help here. I mean, I I get it. We all want to save money. I get it. But my goodness, it is. uh, These are some dire times right now. And I'm not sure that as exciting as prime days are, I'm not sure it's helping everybody. It's helping Jeff Bezos. I'll tell you that. Not everyone else so much.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: A couple of years ago, I had my next guest on the air because she was about to do something that I am pretty sure that then and now. No one else in this city has ever done. No one. She walked every single street of Hamilton. Everyone, every last street of Hamilton was covered by her. I'm pretty confident that not even the most ambitious mayoral candidate has tried to do that. But that was just the start. That was just the beginning of this thing because I thought, okay, when she finished that exercise, literally and figuratively, She would find another hobby, knitting perhaps, watching television, napping would be a good one after walking every street in the city. Uh, No, not so much. Not so much, which I found out recently, which is why I wanted to have her back on today. Uh, Because since we last chatted, as I say, probably two years ago, she has now done the same and expanded her reach and has now walked every street in not only Hamilton, but Stony Creek and Glenbrook as well. Anita Joldersma is her name. She joins me now. Anita, thanks for doing this today. Hello. So Stony Creek and Glanbrook and Hamilton. Have I forgotten any parts or or have I covered everything so far?
3: No, those are the ones I finished. I'm currently working on Ancaster and Dundas, but I'm I don't know I don't think I'll be getting them done anytime really
0: soon. Um, okay, and so how adventurous do you get? Because after Ancaster and Dundas, I'm trying to think of the rest of the map of the city and it's, what really would be left to be like watered down Flamborough. That's a Flamborough, big... Flamborough,
3: yeah. Yeah. No, a, it's, it's hard to find a place to park in some of these, uh, the far flung uh, regions of, of Hamilton, uh, ex- the extended Hamilton. But um, I've been finding, you know, church parking lots that nobody's in during the week and um, I find a place to leave my car and walk around the block and then the next block. And I've been having a lot of fun.
0: Well, and Flamborough, we'll get back to what you've just done. But the other thing with Flamborough is it could end up being, like, a, a walk of a certain street could be like the world's worst 5K where they don't do it on a loop and you end up finishing 5K away from where you started. I mean, you, you, yes. you, it could be very tricky to try and do those way out there areas.
3: Absolutely. and But the, the really, I, I think maybe most satisfying thing is when you see a sign that says, like, I've seen, you know, welcome to Grimsby and welcome to the Niagara Peninsula and welcome to West Lincoln and welcome to Haldeman uh, Norfolk. And you know, it's, that's been, I, I saw just recently, welcome to Brant. And it's like, oh, that's so
0: much fun. Well, for you, for many people, that means they're it lost. Is. <laughs> but,
3: <laughs> it is. And I, I see the sign, I walk past it, and I turn around and go back.
0: <laughs> do, you, do, you ta- do you carry a phone or something? Like, do you take a picture yeah. to, to mark your spots?
3: I've been taking pictures along the way. I have a blog and I put some of them up sometimes i'm I'm not a very um committed blogger, but i do I do have um confessions of a streetwalker up on my personal blog and uh, <laughs> I, I put this, I put some some pictures up and some of the little adventures that i I come across
0: I, I, I don't mean to uh, to say something offensive, but are you a grandmother now as I recall? Yes. Yes. Okay. So have you had to explain to your, your grandchildren yet the play on words for the street walker thing?
3: No, I just, I just tell them, make sure you say street,
0: pause, walker,
3: instead of
0: all one word. Anita, how did the, remind me how this started, remind people listening how this started. How did you decide that this is what you were going to do? Or did you set out to do this? Or did you get halfway through and then say, I may as well finish? How did it happen?
3: Um, it took about a couple of months. Um, I went for a walk and it didn't turn out well. And I just decided to sort of promise myself to keep going for a little bit. And I'm, I'm just a tad um, obsessive compulsive with certain things. And as I started filling in the lines on the map of the, of the places I've completed, I have completed, the ones that I didn't walk on just looked so lonely and bare. So I wanted to walk on them. So I kept going. It took two years, and I got the uh, Hamilton Mountain done, and then four years af- after I started, um, all of Hamilton got done, and then the year after that, I finished Stony Creek, and the year after that, I finished Glenbrook, and that was just this past uh,
0: uh, early fall. But had you started? So you have this big map, and I've seen the map before. You have this big yes. giant map that you've marked out the streets. But like on day one that you th- started doing this, were you already marking it off, or was it a couple of weeks in after yes. you realized that you yes. had been doing this that I'll go start marking them off?
3: A couple of months in, I guess. I I didn't. I certainly didn't have this in mind at the beginning. I don't know. I don't know why I would. I am the most unlikely person to do this. I'm a, I'm a chubby housewife. And I am not athletic or coordinated in any stretch of any imagination, but I could walk. And it was a cheap thing to do. But I ended up, I I ended up falling in love with the city and now the country. And it's just, I feel like I belong to all of Hamilton. And it's just been such a wonderful experiment that I just kind of kept going. And there was no one moment that I said, okay, I'm going to do this. But yeah, it just sort of eventually happened.
0: So would I assume then that early on it was very close to home, the streets you were marking off, yeah. and then it just kept expanding?
3: Yeah, I, I would walk from my house, and then I got farther and farther away, and then I started on my errands. I thought, okay, I will, I will walk around this in neighborhood, and then I just kept finding little places. Now I try not to have too many um, places that I start from. So I, if I find a good place to park, I'll, I'll do a good deal of walking from that one spot.
0: So. And, and how much do you do in a day? Uh, what's a typical day? A, f- a it, few kilometers? or
3: It, it used to be um, like um, a couple of times a week when I started. But now for me to get to a spot that I haven't walked on yet, I have to drive for about a half an hour. So I don't want to do this like every day. So I do it usually once a week. I'll go on a long walk of, you know, eight miles or so. Wow. And then uh, I promised myself to do 10 miles a week and then the rest of them the mileage will be done, you know, around home, going to errands or getting the mail or, you know, things close to to home. But I, I try and get one, you know, good long walk on
0: unyet trodden roads um, at least once a week.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, Anita, let me ask you this. Are you only a good weather walker or will you walk when it's lousy out?
3: Uh, I I try to pick the nicer days. um, But I have uh, started out on a nice day and ended up in a snowstorm on my way back to the car and been woefully underdressed for (laughs) the weather. Uh, I've been caught off guard, but I I carry a Ziploc bag in case it starts raining that I can throw my um, my phone in there so it won't get drenched my keys. So try to be prepared.
0: And I understand that this is, I mean, it's a social thing in a sense, because you've met people along the way, but you do this by yourself. This is not a, a group event. This is a, a solo endeavor.
3: Yeah, this is me by myself. And I, I do run into people from time to time, but I've, I've never really gone walking with anyone. I think I went with my brother uh, for for one of the walks, but that's that's about it. I, I, I like the peace and the quiet. I listen to podcasts and I pray and, yeah, it's, it's just a nice way to kind of spend time with yourself, kind of unhook your brain from the busyness of life. And it's been especially nice during these COVID times to be able to sort mm-hmm. of, yeah.
0: Well, it is. it does seem like it would be a perfect thing for social distancing. Um, it is. What, do you pr- what do you pray about when you're walking?
3: Um, when, I, when I see a house or then I just sometimes pray for something or someone I might see. And it, it just, yeah, makes me feel good and kind of connected to the community that I'm walking through. Hmm. I've also started leaving um, these rocks. I, I, I've seen really pretty sort of encouragement rocks that have been people have set out and they, they've been painted up beautifully. Mine are just really sad, pitiful rocks that have you know black marker that says "Have a nice day." But it's been really fun leaving them all over Glenbrook. Uh, I have started leaving them, you know, on parts of bridges and uh, mailboxes and wherever, you know, it, I, I find a place to leave a rock.
0: Yeah, so so just to make it more difficult you're not only driving half an hour to get there and then walking 10 miles but you're carrying rocks while you do it
3: <laughs> well, usually just a couple at a time but yes and and then if i find a rock then it's like oh this will be a good one so then i just finally get rid of my rock after finding a good place to leave it and then i have to carry another one back with me so but have been- you heard
0: have you heard any uh, of anyone? Do you, I mean, I guess you wouldn't cause they wouldn't know who's leaving it there. They like, have it,
3: no idea. There's, there's no real marking on it or anything. It just says have a good day. And it's just my little hope that someone will see it and we'll, we'll have a brighter day
0: how much planning is involved at uh, once upon a time, I'm guessing it didn't take a whole lot of planning because you had a lot of streets. And so you could just start walking and then etch, X them off or cross them off the map. Now right. is this like a military operation to try and make sure you're, you're going new places?
3: Yeah. I don't want to cover the same roads twice. You want, you want to, although I end up doing some of them more than once to get back to wherever I was, but it, it does, you know, trying to figure out a place to park and which, which, uh, which direction to go to end back, End up back at the car, so it it does. But I I find such joy in it; it it really makes me entirely too too happy to to plot and plan (laughs) where I'll be walking next. It's like it sounds like a really pitiful life when that that map makes me so happy as I
0: fill in the lines. But it really does. Where Where is that map going to go eventually? I mean, at some point, are you going to get it framed and put up on the wall or something?
3: Well, I, I. what I did was when I, I finished the uh, lots of the map and now when I went headed to Stony Creek parts of it wasn't on the map so I have this little section of, of map that I made and it's, it's attached to the, the side and now that I've, I've gone south to Glanbrook it's not on the map either so I made other little maps and then the, I have you know the parts of Bimbrook uh, that were um, on the map that weren't on the, my original map so I just kind of I have all these like appendixes, taped all to the outside edge and you can't really fold the map anymore. So It's getting a a pretty epic.
0: Well, someone, someone in the family is going to have to get it framed for you at some point. I mean, this is an achievement to do now. I'm going to throw something at you here. Um, I, I don't know exactly where you live. You don't have to tell me that's not really all that important, but I am fictionally declaring that you must sell your house and move to some other part of town. Money is no object. You can choose whatever. Having walked everywhere in the city, you now must pick a house in one area of town. Where are you moving to?
3: Oh, that's too hard. Um, I was at the end of Dunmark, I think it was Dunmark Road, is just off what what I called the Highway Two at the time. And I saw the neatest little house and it had a sign in front of it and it was just so nice looking. And I thought it was way too big for what we would ever live in. But it was like, it was beautiful. And I, and I find such, um, I, I see little tiny houses that have flower gardens. And I see well-kept places. And then I see places that aren't so well-kept up. And yeah, they, all the houses, they, they hold families and they, they tell stories all on their own. And fields, I saw a field and I took a picture of it because I thought, what in the heck is that growing in there? It was a farmer's field. And I had no idea what that crop was. I mean, I, I, I know vegetables. I should figure this out. I had no clue. So I put the picture on Facebook and turns out someone knew what it was. And it was a, a, a horseradish plant. And I only hmm. found that out because my husband's cousin's daughter had the neighbor was a farmer and he, he grew that horseradish. So she says, I know the farmer. It's horseradish. So my, my mystery was solved.
0: It is, uh, it's a great story. I, I fear that um, at the end of all this, you may turn into Alexander the Great. You'll know that old quote that was attributed to him, which was, and he wept for there were no more worlds for him to conquer. You may have to go yeah. back and do the whole thing over when you're done, but uh, that's still a no, little ways off.
3: No clue. <laughs>
0: Anita Joldersma, it's a great story. Appreciate you coming on again, and I'm sure we'll talk again somewhere down the road when you do finish doing Ancaster, Dundas, and move into Flamborough. Uh, we may never sure. see you again because you might get lost, but we'll 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 talk to you again. Anita, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Normally on Monday, we would bring in Don Robertson, fresh off a weekend, but uh, now it's really fresh off a weekend. And I thought, you know what? Let's just stretch it out a little bit. Let's stretch the weekend, make everyone think it's a Monday by bringing him in. Don Robertson, an owner and operator of Calm Choice Realty, of the Dundas Real McCoys, of many, many other things in the greater Dundas area. Sir, how are you this evening? I'm good, Scott. Sitting out in the back deck.
4: Wow. Thinking uh, there, won't, there won't be a whole lot of more nights I can do this. Probably not. Not happy. Not. Not, happy that, not happy that it's almost dark. At the start of the show, though, I'll tell you. Listen, uh, Kitchener is that? Yes, I believe was originally called Berlin. Yes, and
0: yes, because of the all the German. Later. Yep, because of all the German yeah. immigrants who moved there, and yes, it was changed. And so again, the 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 story, the legend is that it was a German innkeeper just outside Kitchener who was the responsible for the name of Punky Doodles. Whatever. We'll let people call in with their answer for that. One. It's a great name of a town. I'd love to live in that town, if only for the name. You Even know, way be better there. than way better than living on Swastika Lane, or whatever it's called. I mean, that's that's one that uh, you know that that that's still that's still a fight that people are having to these days. But uh, anyway, let's not dive into that one too much. Um, this weekend, we saw when uh, NHL free agency opened, we saw the scramble, and I mean, it's a different world now with the salary cap not going up and with teams having to cram people in, and it looks like a lot of guys are not going to make a lot of money. A lot of guys are going to take a pay cut because if you want to play, if you want a job, you may have to. But the big prize out there, Don, was Alex Petrangelo, who signed with Vegas yesterday. Big contract, $61 million. But but here's the thing. You're a hockey guy. You've built teams for years. You've won championship-winning teams. You've built last-place teams. Sorry, there's been a couple of them, but just in case people didn't know, you've, you've, you've covered the gamut. More on the top 30, side than the bottom years, side. 40 years. Yeah, more on the top side than the bottom side for sure. But if you're managing a team, if you're building a team, would you rather have one or two superstar players, or would you rather have a bunch of really good players, but that don't cost as much, so you can have more depth, more talent, super talent, or depth? What's the better way?
4: Depth. Depth. So you would have you would have passed on show. him
0: if you were Vegas. You would have passed on him and kept your depth guys, your good players, just not get the superstar. Well, I, I didn't say that.
4: Uh, Vegas have a very deep team. Like, their strength is they can roll four lines at you. What they haven't had is a stud defenseman like Chris Pronger, Chris Chelios. They haven't had any of those things. But you can't win without depth. I mean, if somebody comes into town and we're going to play against them, and I don't care how good those two guys are that play for another team, the real McCoys, if we're deep enough, we'll shut them down. Because we can stop two guys, what you can't stop, what you can't stop is depth. And if they've got a couple superstar guys, then boy, they're going to win a lot. I think, I think Vegas did a great job.
0: Uh, you know, the, the only downside, if there is a downside, is that it did cost them. They did have to give up a couple of guys who were really good players to make him fit under the salary cap. And and you know, I do wonder if in the end you come out further ahead or if you sort of balance things off. And for me, Don, the fear always is if you put a lot of your money into one guy, if he gets hurt or if he has a really off year, you're snookered. Whereas if you have some money in two or three guys, chances are one of them is going to be off, but one or two could have really good years. And, you know, at least, at least you spread out the risk a little bit. What's he, what's he getting like 8.2? Something like that. So, don't
4: the Leafs have three guys paying, getting paid more than that?
0: Uh, yeah, three guys over ten.
4: Okay, three guys over ten, and, and uh, Nylander probably making that money. I'm not sure the model is to have four guys eating up almost half your salary cap versus one guy maybe eating up twenty percent. See the see the difference. I mean, Vegas don't have ten million dollar hockey players. And generally speaking, there's not a lot of history for teams that have a bunch of $10 million players winning Stanley Cups, back to my point, because you can stop them. You can shut them down. You can't shut depth down.
0: I think if you're the Leafs, if you're Kyle Dubas, if you're Leaf fans, you look at this year and you think – you know, nobody wants what happened with COVID and everything else, but I, I I am quite confident that anyone who was signing a contract, whether it was Matthews or Marner or Nylander or Tavares, nobody is getting the kind of money they got if you were signing this year. And so you look at it and you go, man, why couldn't they have come up for free agency this year? We could have got them for a whole lot less money. Now their yeah. salaries look enormous.
4: Oh, great point. I mean, um, Taylor Hall, um, who Colorado didn't want back? Apparently, at the price he wanted, eight million dollars. I mean, former MVP a couple of years ago. You're right; he'd have made ten million, nine million long term. Like a lot of teams aren't paying anybody ten million except the Leafs. I mean, if you look back historically, there's not a whole lot of ten million dollar a year hockey players in the National Hockey League outside of Toronto. I mean. There's the odd guy, but it's traditionally that's not the way it's been going for the last three or four years outside of Toronto. So, you know, of all places, they're going to gamble on somebody. I guess Vegas is the right place.
0: I guess so. I guess so. And, and I mean, you always hear that, the, and I don't know if there's any truth to it at all, but you always hear, well, you got to pay more to get them to Toronto because it's such a tough market and it's not warm and all this stuff. Well, you know what? I mean, Don, I, I can tell you that, First of all, guys who grew up here, there's a lure. We've seen that already. And second of all, even if Toronto is not the warmest place and has a lot of pressure, there are still a whole lot of markets in the NHL that you would look at and you go, I'd rather play in Toronto than there. I mean, there's no way that you can possibly make the case that Toronto is one of those markets that you have to significantly overpay. Ottawa, yeah. Winnipeg, yeah. Um, maybe Edmonton, although probably less so with McDavid and Drysidal there, the guys want to play there. But for a while, there were outposts that were places guys didn't want to go to. Toronto should not be that.
4: No, they're not. And when you, I mean, there was a lot of chat on the weekend about Gary Roberts and Joe Newendijk coming back, you know, mid-30s, playing well, a little bit left in the tank, could make a contribution but if you really think about long, t- pardon me, Scott. Uh, if you really think about long term and you're a local guy, if you play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, your after retirement recognition and ability to dine out on that are pretty high. You know, like Wayne Simmons is coming back. He's he's gritty. He's one of the things they like about him. Apparently, he took a hometown discount, but. When you finish your career as a Toronto Maple Leaf, it kind of sets you up for other things down the road. So Sure it does. Sure I mean, it does. So the smart guys coming home, I think, for Goshen, won a Stanley Cup, could have stayed in Tampa, wanted to come to Toronto. Like, he'll be the new Ron Hainsey, I think. But see, well, the, the lure I yeah, no. have is it's the after-career benefits that if you finish your career as a Toronto Maple Leaf, Something a guy, a legend like Marcel Dion could never dine out on.
0: I bet, yeah, well, I mean, take Marcel Dion for example. Yeah, Marcel Dion, if he had played in Toronto even for a couple of years, we would we would know. I mean, there's a lot of people who know the name, but not a whole lot about Marcel Dion. He had the misfortune of playing in L.A. when L.A. was the outpost of outposts. I mean, it was nice; the weather was nice, but like it was horrible teams, and nobody wanted to be there. But your point, I think, I think your point has an awful lot of validity about the the post career stuff. How much would Toronto fans know about Darcy Tucker if he had stayed with the Tampa Bay Lightning when they were bad and never come and played for the Leafs, or? Um, Take your pick. I mean, Shane Corson. Shane. Now, both those guys, I know that there's issues going on right now, legal issues they're dealing with, but that doesn't matter. The the reality is Shane Corson is a name brand, partially because of his Hamilton connection, but because he played a bit for the Leafs. I mean, Jeff O'Neill, who now is a radio host on a Toronto sports radio station, would he have had that gig if he had not finished his career with the Leafs and become familiar to Toronto fans? Maybe, but I bet you that it helped an awful lot that he had that connection.
4: Well, I think the prime example of a guy that recognized the value of playing in Toronto was when Gretzky wanted to come here. Fletcher had him signed, allegedly, to a deal. And the ownership of the Maple Leafs that we're not paying him that much. I I think Gretzky, in retrospective analysis, could have said, I will play for $2 million a year less than what you offered me because it'll set me up even better than I already am. I know I'm a Brantford kid. I know I've won a bunch of Stanley Cups. But if I finish my career in Toronto, I mean, he will. He would be good. They'd have a statue in front of uh, Derek Canada Centre, Scotiabank Place. Like, he'd have been a legend. Somebody made a mistake there. First of all, the Leafs should have paid him. Second of all, he should have dropped his demands and not worried about whatever the number was. Because his value as a promoter in Ontario and Canada to finish his career in Toronto, he'd still be reaping those benefits.
0: Yeah, but he, you know what? On the other hand, he's Wayne Gretzky. I don't think that if anybody ever should not have to drop their demands, uh, I think that I, I know you, I get your point, but I, I mean, there's a guy who says, look, you know, I'm, I'm Wayne Gretzky. Come on, you know, pay me some money and, But yeah, I, you know, I, like, I, I really do believe that there's something to that. And I, I'm perhaps being very naive because, you know, there are many people listening who say the day will never come, at least in our lifetime, that the Leafs win a cup, which may in fact be true, but boy, oh boy, if they ever did win a cup and you had come back and you were here as a local kid who was part of that team, you know, let's say just for fun, just for fun. Let's say the Leafs somehow find a way to win it this year. They pull a Tampa. They've been disappointed so many times. They they finally figure it out, and they go on a run. Now, to your point about post-hockey careers, what, what happens then to Wayne Simmons if he, as a local guy who's back in Toronto when they win the Cup, what, what does that do for him after hockey if he's now in Toronto? And I think the answer is obvious.
4: Well, quite, quite frankly, if he knew that was in the cards, he could play here for free if he knew they'd win a cup because his after-career um, gains would be astronomical. They would be huge. He'd be fine. I mean, nobody's going to play for free. I mean, that's very hypothetical, but th- the reality is you're absolutely right. Can you imagine if Tucker and, and Corson and Roberts and Neuendijk had won a cup here and Dougie Gilmore, good Kingston kid? I mean, they're doing fine anyway. Can you imagine what it would elevate elevated to? And the proof's in the pudding. Some of the legends, the Leaf legends that were on the last Leaf Stanley Cup team, Johnny Bauer, Eddie Shack, uh, Dickie Duff, Dickie Brent Duff,
0: Mahovlich, yeah, uh, all those guys, Dave Keon, all those guys.
4: Yeah, but I mean, look at—I'm talking about the guys that are passed away mm. this summer. I mean, they're—I mean, they're on. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, right? no, you like never forget.
4: That, like Eddie Shack was Eddie Shack. I mean, he was Eddie, the entertainer, but Johnny Bauer, who was a great ambassador of the game. Why was he given that opportunity? And Johnny Bauer, who I had the privilege of meeting several times is a, a outstanding human being and a very nice guy. Would he have been afforded that if he'd have played for the open seals? I think not, but actually they won a Stanley cup and, and 50 years later, they're still legends. I mean, it's, It's, it's pretty big inventory when you can win a Stanley Cup in Toronto and they do it like once every 50 years, maybe 60.
0: Well, and, and that's, you know, so we got to wrap, but that's, that's what Alex Petrangelo is now talking about. I mean, he's going to make a lot of money to play in Vegas and he's going to do it with low taxes and he's going to take home a lot of it and good for him. I mean, he was the top guy on the free agent market, but when he retires and he most certainly will, because he's got a no trade clause apparently. Uh, when he retires as a Vegas Golden Knight, what is his post-hockey spin-off that he gets to ride with in Vegas? I would I would suggest that you know he may get a job with the team. Who knows? Uh, but he will, I'm quite confident, be able to walk the streets of Vegas when he's retired and not be bothered. Because no one's going to know who he yes. is
1: down there.
4: And he's going to have so much money, it won't matter. We were talking, not true. or true. at least I was, I was reforming, more to the Wayne Simmons and the guys like that that come back and and uh, you know the Corsons and stuff like that that didn't sign 60 million dollar deals but you're right guys like that do they care if anybody
0: recognizes them nope nope I mean he wasn't he didn't play last year for 40 bucks no they're all now doing he's okay he's got 60 million Don, we got to go. But even the guys, I I did laugh this weekend because even when they were talking about how guys are taking massive pay cuts, massive pay cuts, they're barely getting by and they're, and you know, he, look, this guy's getting, he just got ripped off. He only got 700,000 or 800,000 for this year to play US. And I was like, well, you know, if you're, if it's too much of a burden for you to bear, I will switch places with you and and do that if you need me to. Uh, I mean, I'll take your 700,000 US for a year and and suffer if that really is, uh, is, is too much, but uh, no one has taken me up on the offer yet.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Don, last week we heard and we talked on the show with myself and I think Bubba O'Neill, we talked on the show about the Ontario sports minister saying that when the Ontario Hockey League comes back this fall, if it does because they're scheduled or they want to start on December 1st, in all likelihood they are going to have to start playing with no body contact. And i got to figure that if the Ontario Hockey League is being told no body contact, the Allen Cup Senior Men's League that you are part of may also be facing the same thing. What do you guys do if they tell you guys you can't have body contact?
4: I think we talk with the players. We talk as board of directors and see if that works. And quite frankly, I think I would say yes uh, mostly because our level of hockey is refereed at a little bit different uh, um, standard than junior hockey, and we could probably get away with uh, some body contact. Uh, I mean, we can't have a bunch of guys out there running around and with picks under skates, right? Like figure skaters. But the reality is, you know, you can still have some contact. I mean, what's no body contact mean? Uh, when you watch uh, in the Olympics, the women's Olympic game. If it's nobody contact like that, then you can probably get away with it. What they're going to talk about. Well, They're talking about no contact, which is kind of silly, but if you're talking about no open ice hits and everything else, I don't know how that's going to save anybody. They're going to line up beside each other, snorting and yelling at each other at a face off. I don't know what a body check is going to save. say. But...
0: See, that's my, that's my thought on this thing as well, as I've given this some thought, all right, so I get the theoretical idea that we don't want people crashing into each other because it's close quarters, but the entire game is played in close quarters. In front of the net, you're in close quarters. If you're trying to get position, if you're coming in one-on-one, when, as you say, you line up for a face-off in the dressing room, on the bench, the, Like, the, the, I don't think that body checking is the sole place where this virus could be passed in a game. It seems like it's picking a, a particular spot and, and saying, well, here's how we're going to make it safe, and it really doesn't accomplish anything.
4: Well, I, I don't think there's anybody with any hockey background that was in the room when they talked about that. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, I don't think it's going to make anybody safer. I saw some stuff on Facebook, which is, as we know, as accurate a place in the world as you can get good information that people were talking about not having anybody over for Thanksgiving dinner, but you could have 30 over because they're going to have a funeral for their bird. So, I mean, if you think about the <laughs> practicalities, you are going to have 30 people to a funeral, right? So if you think about it, so you're going to put 18 guys in a dressing room, to get ready for the game or split them up, put nine in a dressing room, all in the same dressing room. You're going to have them line up for face-offs, but you can't hit anybody. I, you know, I don't know why they don't call me on these issues because they make some really bizarre decisions. Some practicality stepping in would be probably very welcome by the uh, CHL. I mean, if Dave Branch was on that committee, I, I, I'd be astonished. Now, That said, as you know how I operate, if they had some hockey guys from the OHL on the committee and said, the only way we're going to let this thing move forward, term of which I hate, the only way we're going to let this thing move along so you can compete this year is if we eliminate body checking, and they look at it and go, okay, so we either have a league with no body checking and fans, or we have no league at all, they're going to say, okay, we'll play with no body checking. Then they'll talk to the officials and they'll redefine what a body check is.
0: Well, and so how do you do that, Don? Because uh, let me give you an example. And I, I I mean, I don't have to give you the example, but I'm throwing it out there as, as the discussion point. A guy comes down on a defenseman on a one-on-one play and a defenseman has always been taught to use his body. Don't look at the puck, play the body, ride the guy off. You don't have to smush him into the boards, but you just don't let him get by you. Is that now if you get in the way and you get your body between him and the goalie and you don't let him get by, is that a body check?
4: Yes, it is. And as a guy that refereed at a pretty high level, I'll tell you how I would do it. So every time you see that, generally speaking, the guy that's going to get, you know, pushed out in the boards or hit in the boards, it's automatically his back arm swings to whack at the guy that did it. He's trying to get some kind of a payback, which he, it's rather weak rather weak, but he tries something. I would think you see the official cause call two for body checking and two for roughing. And they would even that up and they'd let play carry on. So there's going to be body checking, but there's going to be a lot of evening up if there's a normal body check. Is that the right way to do it? I don't know.
0: But (laughs) at this level, and I'm talking about OHL hockey, and I'm sure most people listening have seen an OHL game and, There are guys in that league who are exceptional talents. I mean, they're the guys who are going on to play in the NHL. And if you allow them to skate anywhere on the ice and nobody can get in their way and nobody can do anything to impede their progress, it's going to end up with scores like NHL All-Star games where you have games that end 15-14 because it's going to be impossible. I mean, take a guy like on the Bulldogs, Arthur Kaliev, who, you know what, he is is exactly what you would call as a pure goal scorer. And if you essentially say to him, you can go anywhere and do anything on the ice and you have no fear of being hit, of being obstructed, of being blocked out, nothing, you can do whatever you want. That guy is going to score 75 goals a year. And he's not the only one. And is that really then hockey at that point? Or is it a bit of a sham that they're trying to sell just to keep the game going? But what's the point?
4: Well, it's, it's not what they want to sell, but it Again, if that's the only thing that they're allowed to sell, they will sell it. I mean, if that's all you've got, otherwise your business just shuts down. And more importantly, if nobody can come and watch, it won't matter if they've all got picks on the end of their uh, blades because nobody's coming. They can't afford to operate without fans unless there's a business model in the OHL, which I've looked at a few of them, uh, that's brand new. The only teams, the only leagues that can afford to do what they pulled off did it. And they did it in a bubble, and they did it on TV revenue. But I'll tell you, nobody's running a whole league, not the NHL, not the NBA, unless there's severe salary caps and uh, compensation uh, back to the teams. But the OHL, I mean, you can say, well, you know, they have advertising. Well, I can tell you right now, the real McCoy advertisers have been absolutely wonderful. Everybody I've went to says, yeah, we're behind you 100%. You know, we might shorten our season. That's okay. But you know what? If we can't put people in the building, those guys are not buying rink boards and program ads because there's nobody there to buy them or look at the boards. So their advertising packages are shot, and you just can't afford to operate without people. Whether they uh... they can't hit whatever else it is. It It just does not work.
0: It is an interesting one and it is, uh, it, uh, again, I I, I think it's, it's a ludicrous position to be taking because I don't think it solves anything because I don't think that hitting is the sole place where you're going to be passing this if it's going to be passed. But you know what? It's an easy target, I suppose. It's easier than saying no face-offs. We're going to throw the puck into the corner and play like at men's league on a Friday night at midnight for whoever shows up for shinny. But you know what? Who knows? Who knows? And you're probably right. If, if we have to do it to get the games on, we'll do that too. I'll
4: tell you, if you talk to guys that played in the 70s and watched the games in the 70s and the early 80s, and you said to them, they're not going to have hitting this year, they look at you and say, they haven't had hitting for five years. Since the NHL opened it up and the small guys, which I love, skilled guys can play instead of just, you know, a bunch of big tough guys, which I absolutely love too. But, those, the hitting compared to the 70s and 80s has evaporated anyways. You might not
1: notice
0: how that big a difference.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Don, the Los Angeles Lakers won the NBA championship on the weekend. That's fine. I, I don't know how many people were watching. Ratings were way, way, way down. But at the end of the championship, LeBron James, who is in the discussion as the greatest player of all time, is being interviewed and he talked about how he wanted their team to get respect and how he wanted the general manager to get respect. And then he said, and I want my respect too. And I listened to this and I thought to myself, this may be the neediest athlete in the history of time that a guy who is already in the discussion as the greatest player ever is desperate for people to say that he's great. Like, am I missing something or is this kind of almost sad? Like you would never hear Wayne Gretzky say, give me my respect that I'm the best. Or you never hear Jim Brown or Wilt Chamberlain or Magic Johnson or pick your player, uh, you know, whatever. I've, I've, I don't remember a lot of other players who are in the discussion as the greatest ever saying, I need to be respected. Respect me. It, to me, it was sad. Well, if
4: your analogy is uh, spot on. Bobby Orr doesn't ever ask anybody to respect them. The, the great guys don't. They don't say, what about me? Right? Because you don't ever have to say, what about me? And I don't think that you can ever request respect. The minute that any time you're doing anything in your life, whether it's a radio show host or whatever it is, and say, I demand that you respect me, is about the day people are going, boy, that guy's really in trouble. Because respect is earned. It's not begged for. It's not granted. You just have to go out and earn it. And he's done that, and he's at the end of his career, you know, uh, MVP. What do you want from us? Like, you well, know, is if the he the if, if- all time. Ah. He's he's won championships in four different places. Michael won six in one place. Is it harder to win four four in three different places? Eh, Probably, but don't beg for respect, for heaven's
0: sakes. What if the conversation at the end of all this, and it, it never will be this because everyone has their opinion, but what if the conversation eventually says, you were the second or third best NBA player of all time? Is that not giving respect? Like I, I, uh, is it in, in 2020 is respect is the only measure of respect that we unilaterally and unanimously say that you are the greatest of all time. Is that respect? So if anyone says anyone else was a better player, in my opinion, then I'm not respecting you. Don, if you tell me that I am the second or third best in the world, that anything that I've done ever, I'm going to take that compliment every single day of the week and go, you know what? That's, that's pretty good. That's uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with that, especially with the people that you are marking me up against: Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, pick your guy. That's that's pretty good company. Do I need to know that you're going to make me number one, or I'm going to feel disrespected? That I don't know that. that the only in my mind, in my mind, the only the only person that you are obligated to respect until they prove otherwise. Is your parents and if they prove that they are unworthy of your respect maybe that's a different story but that, that's someone you respect because you must to begin with but everyone else i agree with you you earn that respect
4: yeah and you know what he tried to hide it a bit scott by saying you need to respect my gm my teammates and everything and, and you need to respect me he kind of couched his position like being second best is okay well, it's not always okay. I was in Woodstock one night, referee at a senior game. Steve McGurkis came up to me and told me I was the second best referee he'd ever seen, and everybody else was tied for first. So being second isn't <laughs> always the best thing you can do. My, I'm 21 years old and my chest puffing on going, oh, crap, this guy played in the NHL, and then he hit me with that bomb. But LeBron James doesn't need to do that. And that's what guys sometimes do when they reach out at the end of their careers, and it's sad. There's no reason for it, and he dimin- diminishes in my mind.
0: Yes, yes. The the,
4: res- the respect that actually a lot of people had for him is going. Why is he begging? We're all talking about him being goat, which is always an interesting, an inter- an interesting uh, um, phrase but he's in the conversation about being the greatest of all time. You don't have to beg for that. Let others, let your peers decide if you are
0: that. Yes. See that. What's the, what is the prize? I suppose in begging people so that just so they'll say, okay, that's you as opposed to accepting the plaudits of those who truly say without any prompting. Yeah. I think LeBron is the greatest player of all time to me. Someone who compliments you without you nudging them, that compliment is v- a million times more valuable than walking up to someone and saying, hey, say something nice about me, Don. Say something nice. And, you, and, you, and you're on the spot then. You go, well, yeah, you've got, uh, a, you know, you're tall. Okay, great. I feel good. What, am I supposed to feel good then? Because I've basically nudged and pushed you and cajoled you into a compliment. I'd rather God, that someone come up and say hum- something nice and then you go, hum- wow, that's great. Yeah. No, it's. No, like, I. I, I... For, for
4: a guy like that, it's really sad because he gets paid like he's the greatest. He's proven that he is certainly in the conversation. And I, you know, I always look at analogies like this. Like LeBron James is probably the best player in the NBA in the last 10 years, the past decade. Yep. Right? He's been yep. there 18 years. And uh, Michael Jordan was the best for a decade. Bobby R was the best for a decade. Gretzky was the best for a decade. Lemieux was best for a decade. Russ Jackson was the best for a decade. What's wrong with that? Times change. The way the game's played has changed. The way the players play the game. You can absolutely be the best player of that decade and play differently than the next guy of the next decade because the game has changed. I talked earlier about talk to guys that played hockey in the seventies and they look at today's game and say, they've already eliminated body contact. They don't have it anymore. We used to maul guys. We used to, we used to throw guys to the ice without a penalty, right? I mean, so every decade's different. Why do we have to have the argument that, uh, is LeBron better than, uh, uh, Michael Jordan and cream magic. Why don't we let them all play at the same time? And, uh, like it doesn't make any sense to me. Why does somebody have to be the best? They can be the best of their time, but maybe not all time.
0: And talk to, look, it, it, if you talk to Bobby Orr, and you and I both have, and you would ask him who's the greatest player of all time. I would bet you all the money that I've ever had in my life. He's not going to answer Bobby Orr. He's going to say Wayne Gretzky or Gordy Howe or whatever. We've seen, we've heard Wayne Gretzky when he's been asked this question say Gordy Howe was the best player of all time. We, when Barry Sanders has been asked who was arguably the greatest running back of all time, who's the greatest? Invariably, he's going to say Jim Brown. You can go down the list. All the greats don't, uh, except for two, except for two, it seems. Michael Jordan, who seems to be pretty much insistent that he be number one, which is why I'm pretty sure that his documentary series came out around the time it did when LeBron was you know, doing what LeBron was doing and racking up some wins, and and LeBron, who seems to think that he has to be. I I can't think of any others who are as insistent that they have to be the greatest of all time. And quite frankly, here's my answer that probably in the event that either of them are listening today will not make them happy, they're both wrong. Magic Johnson was the greatest player of all time made everybody on the court around him better. Unlike the other two who make themselves who are fantastic players. But if I was drafting a team from scratch and you could take a player of any era, my first choice might actually be Wilt Chamberlain, but Magic Johnson would be probably right up there. But you know what? That's everyone's opinion. Everyone gets to have one, but apparently you don't. If you don't say that LeBron is the greatest of all time, you're not giving him his appropriate respect and, and, Again, both of us agree that, that to me that's just kind of sad and um, I don't want to use the word some pathetic, people, but it, there is there is a bit of that.
4: Some people think Will Chamberlain was the greatest of all time. 10, he averaged 50
0: points a game for a whole year. And I know that he Get was a, a tall, tall giant when they didn't have a lot of giants. Okay, but he still, you can only judge guys against their competition, and he was by far the most dominant player when he was playing. How else do you judge him?
4: Hence my comment: You, Bobby Orr was greatest for a decade. Gordy Howe was greatest for a decade. Wayne Gretzky was like go down with Bobby Orr. Like, file them in decades because the game changes.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Style now,
4: the athleticism of these guys today versus the guys of yesteryear are so different. Nineteen seventy-two Summit Series. Guys had to get in shape to play. They were
1: fine. They just didn't care. now, now
0: Now they're never out of shape.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.